The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. We're a fountain of life-giving and soul-filling and thirst-quenching water. You are not a despot. You could be because you have all power, but you aren't. You are a fountain of life. Most particularly a fountain of living water in the person of Jesus. God who became man for us to wade into, be washed by, and drink deeply from, and experience your kingship and your kingdom as you mean it to be. Bless your name. Bless your name. And so, Father, we ask you this morning to give us another drink. To fill us. To meet us here as we consider what you've written ages ago. And mean for us to hear and, and apply this morning and tomorrow and the next day. Meet us here. Give us grace to commune with you. To not just read words on a page, but to actually commune with you and be changed. Would you do that, Father, here this morning? You are a king and we see in this text your command. And you are a fountain that means to to bless us and to quench us and to enable this command to bring life to us and blessing to us. So, Father, I pray, would you commission your spirit to run free in this room right now? Prohibit and tear down all barriers and all hindrances to your spirit's freedom in each one of our hearts. Be we children of yours at this moment or not. Overcome all distractions. Speak loudly and clearly into our heart. And if we are your children, Lord, call us deeper into the water and quench us. And Lord, for those here who do not know you, give them a taste, draw them, convict and encourage and save. Father, send your Spirit to do that. Lift up your Son in our eyes. Draw us to you. Give life for his glory and for the good of your church, I pray it. Amen. We've been working through the book of Deuteronomy, a book of the law of Moses. And one thing I hope that you've noticed over these past months is how frequently the grace of God shows up in this book. It's something that, for some of us, might be a bit of a surprise because we don't often associate grace with the Old Testament and especially grace with the law, but it's here all the time. And I hope you've noticed that and that it has stirred your heart and drawn you to him. And you've probably also noticed, though, that the law is indeed very demanding. The law is demanding. And our text for today, Deuteronomy chapter 11, is no different. There is requirement in it. And I imagine that for some of us, these two concepts of grace and demanding law, how they fit together is a little bit difficult for us. 
they, they do, and we're going to see a little bit of that again this morning with the, the law and its demands and, and the grace and its forgiving and enabling power. They're going to both be in this text again this morning as we see the grace of God forgiving us of our law, breaking and enabling us to keep the law more and more each day. So Deuteronomy 11 is getting at. And as it's doing that, it contains several connections to to other parts of Deuteronomy. Most obviously, you will hear some language that sounds a lot like Deuteronomy chapter 6. In the flow of the book, he he gave the law in chapter 5 in its briefest statement, and then the great commandment summarizing it in chapter 6, and here he's kind of bookending that here in chapter 11, before he launches into many chapters of all the details, 12 and following. So there's some similarity here to that chapter and to other places in the book. But the closest similarities it bears are to what came just before, the last half of chapter 10. We looked at chapter 9 where he kind of gave them marching orders and then paused to talk about, yes, God is going to bless, but it is not because of your righteousness. You have not earned or deserved or merited anything. In fact, you have no righteousness theme of chapter 9 that continues on into chapter 10. And then in the middle of the chapter we saw last week, while talking about the grace of God that blesses, 9 into chapter 10, he also then turns to talk about the requirement, the requirement that God has for us. He demands our allegiance. That began in the middle of chapter 10. And in a very real way, that's still the theme. This is all one long discussion that moves on into our text for today, chapter 11. So we're kind of on the same basic theme as we were last week. God's requiring allegiance. So as I read the chapter today, I'm going to actually reach back into chapter 10 and start there in verse 21 because it's going to bring up a couple of subjects that will immediately come up again in chapter 11. So to kind of catch the flow, I'm going to move back a little bit. Let me read the text beginning in chapter 10, verse 21 through chapter 11. It is a long passage. I'm going to read the whole text, though, because it is the word of God. So Deuteronomy 10, verse 21. He, the Lord, is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep His charge his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, his signs, and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land. And what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. And what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. And what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, 
and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it, like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give the rain for your land in its seasons, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And He will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. <clears throat> For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today, to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the Oak of Morah? If you were to cross over the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. Deuteronomy 11. The last couple of verses of chapter 10 declare to us in, in brief summary what God has done. It says, He is our praise, the one that our heart sings about. Why? Because He has done great and terrifying things right in front of our eyes. And 
They praise Him because He's done those things on their behalf. They are great and alarming, amazing things that they've seen. So they praise Him. He brought them down into Egypt as sojourners, and He prospered them, and then He brought them out. Verse 1, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and obey Him. Keep His commandments. Just like last week up in verse 12, have the, the love and obey. Remember in verse 12 we saw five things that were required and the middle one was love. And they're really all, they're kind of one great big thing. Allegiance. Give Him yourself. Your heart, loving and fearing. Your hands, obeying and keeping and following after Him. That's what He requires. Love Him and obey Him. Those two things, they're inseparable. And they run together all through this passage. Now, you can talk about obedience separately. And there are several places in the passage that do call the people to obey God. And, and it says just that, keep the commandments, follow after them. Like verse 8 says that. 27 and 28, obey the commandments. Verse 32 at the very end, obey and keep and do the statutes. So you, they can't talk about obedience by itself. But logically, this obedience and love belong together. And three places in the chapter say that. Verse 1, love and obey. Verse 13, obey the commandment, the singular. Obey the, the or verse 22 is the singular. Verse 13 is plural. Obey the commandments, love and serve the Lord with all of your heart and all of your soul. And verse 22, be careful to do all the commandment. Here's the single commandment. Love him and walk in his ways, holding fast to him. So there's about six places there, as you skip through this passage, where love and obedience are commanded and required. Clearly, he keeps coming back to that. It's what he's after. God wants loving obedience, love and obey. They are inseparable because the obedience comes out of a heart that's his. This is what he's after in us. It's a significant thrust. It was, it's what marks the people of Abraham, those who have a circumcised heart, if you remember from last week have disobedience and stubbornness cut away from them and are instead humble before Him, loving Him and following Him. That's what the chapter's after. And then verse 2 begins to explain how we get there. It starts with a second command. Verse 1 was the command, love the Lord and serve Him. And then verse 2, another command, consider. Consider. Literally, it's know, K-N-O-W. Know this. Consider it. Ponder it. Let it sink in. Work on this. And you can, because not like your little ones who haven't seen all this. This happened right before your eyes. Consider the discipline of the Lord. His work to shape the moral character. His work to shape the heart. Ponder this. He has shown His greatness, His mighty arm, His, His strong hand. He's displayed that. So, work on this. He did something. In verse 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, all have that little phrase, He did. So, consider the discipline of the Lord. Consider what He did. He did something to Pharaoh in Egypt. 
He did something to the army that was pursuing you. He did something to you in the wilderness when you lacked. And he did something to those couple of guys, or you can read about the story in, in Exodus. And he did something to those folks who rejected him and were therefore a cancer in your midst. You saw with your own eyes all that he did. Consider it. Let it sink in. Therefore, verse 8, keep the commandment. You see how he, 1 and 8, he, he brackets it around what you're to consider, what you're to think about. There's something there about how it is we are to become lovingly obedient, obediently loving. By considering what God has done. He tells them, keep the commandment. And if you do, you'll be strong and you'll go in and you'll take the land. And what a land it is. Verses 8 to 17 unload some of the the blessing of this land. It's a land of milk and honey. It's a land that, a significant thing, has rain, has water, which is going to provide for crops and provide for pasture, which provides for cattle, which provides for life and wealth. This this is a good land, a land that the Lord looks on and blesses, and He'll give it to you. If, verse 13, obedient love marks you. But 16, if you turn away and follow after another God, He'll shut off the spigot, the land will die, and so will you. So it is critical that you and then each generation after you get this, This call, this command to obedient love. And so sink it into your hearts, in the words of of chapter 6. Sink it into your heart. And write it on your hand so that whenever you stretch out your hand to act, obedient love is right there. When people meet you on the street, they see you written all over your face. Obedient love. When they come to your house, on the doorposts of your house, obedient love. It characterizes you. And then teach it to your kids because it has to characterize them too. You don't have any coattails. You don't bring them in because you're in. Teach it to them because they must be marked by obedient love themselves. Teach it at home, when you're out and about. Teach it in the morning, when they rise up, at night when you go to bed. Teach it to them. It's critical. So important that if if it marks you, He will give you this land. And if it doesn't, He won't. He elaborates on that a little bit more in that blessing and curses section, 26 and following. Now, we're going to see a lot more about this in later later chapters here in this book, the blessing and cursing. But this is the language, you might recall, this is the language of ancient treaties. Where the the great king who acquires a people, then he, he issues his requirements to them, and then backs it up always, backs it up at the end with blessings and curses section. If you follow me, here's the blessings you will receive, and if you don't, here's the cursing you will receive. It's just like that pattern. Deuteronomy does the very same thing. I think for some of us, this causes a little bit of confusion because we're reading this and we're, we're thinking with minds in the New Covenant. And we're not realizing a dynamic of the Old Covenant. Now, different Christians will disagree with this, but... I, I think that a significant thing that has changed in the New Covenant is that everybody who is actually in the New Covenant is also spiritually saved. Saved from their sin, in union with Christ, going to heaven. If you're in the New Covenant, you're saved. 
That's different from the Old Testament. I think that's one significant thing that has changed. As I said, some Christians disagree. But in the Old Testament, it's explicitly not that way. You're born into the covenant. And it's a totally different question whether or not you actually are in the heart saved. And so what he says to people in this old covenant are, you're in covenant with me, but watch your heart because it's not automatic. The people that are in covenant with me, I deal with them in a blessing-cursing way. So don't just assume, hey, I'm in this covenant, I'm just fine. Hold fast to me. And those who hold fast to me and trust me, they're fine. They'll receive the blessing. And those who reject me and turn away, they'll receive the cursing. It's a wrinkle between these two covenants. To translate that to us here in, in the New Covenant time, I sometimes kind of coin this phrase. It helps me to understand this. Covenant claimer. We all sit here, and those who claim to be Christians, we're claiming to be in covenant with him. And of course, that claim doesn't say anything genuinely about your heart. It just says what you want to be true about your heart. So we can still hear these blessings and curses section coming to us, the church. Watch out. You claim to be in covenant. Is your heart really there? Because just claiming to be in covenant and you walk away from him, you walk into the curses. The genuine person who actually is in the covenant with a heart that is changed will walk into obedience and love and blessing. Now, I'll have more to say about that later when we come to those chapters in the back end of the book of Deuteronomy. But realize that, that we can't just dismiss the blessings and curses because, hey, we're, we're in the New Testament, we're in the New Covenant now. It still applies to us at the level of the community and it's a warning to us. If you turn away and follow after some other God and throw the Lord away, all that's left to you is cursing. So don't go there. Respond to Him instead in obedient love. And that's the theme of the chapter. Respond to Him in obedient love. It's the requirement. That's the text. A continuation of chapter 10's demand for allegiance and it has also an element of enabling grace in it. Those are the two things that we're going to work on and try to develop this morning. Let me summarize the main thrust. There's obviously a lot in this chapter, but let me try to summarize the main thrust of it in this sentence. I'm going to put it in the form of a command because there are numerous commands here. Stir up obedient love towards God by considering the grace of God in Christ. Stir up, fuel, enhance, whatever word you want to put in there, stir up obedient love towards God by considering, giving focused attention to the grace of God that He has given in and through Christ. You break that into two parts. First observation. Is, the first observation is concerned with the repeated command throughout the passage, the, the theme of what God requires. God requires us to respond to Him with obedient love. 
He requires everybody on the planet, but especially those who claim to be His people. Those who say, I'm after God. I'm a Christian. I follow after Him. He requires of us that we respond to Him with obedient love. It's all over the chapter. Right off, beginning verse 1, you shall love Him and keep His charge always. We walk through all those verses. Verse 8, keep His commandment. 13, obey Him, love Him, serve Him. 22, do the commandment, loving Him and walking in His ways. You hear the loving obedience, obedient love. It's clearly what He requires here in this chapter, throughout the whole book of Deuteronomy. In the New Testament too. Words of Jesus in John 14. Listen to what He says. John 14, verse 15. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Verse 21. Whoever has My commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves Me. Verse 23. If anyone loves Me, he will keep My word. Verse 24. Whoever does not love Me does not keep My words. It's one chapter. Eight, nine verses. Jesus Himself, four times, connecting these two things, forward and backward. Love and obedience, they go together always. Because the heart and the hands are plugged together inside of us. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Hands act. Love and obedience. Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy, Jesus in the New Testament, they are inseparable. One cannot say, I love God, and not do what He commands. Perfectly? Without fail? Always obeying Him? No. While we're in this world, we are, we're plagued by our flesh. Our, our sinful nature is still with us. We are plagued by that. So we will fall. We will sin. But the mark of one who actually belongs to Him is this loving obedience. The path that a Christian walks is the path of obedience. Following Him. Keeping His commands. We desire it. We grow in it. We're grieved when we wander from it. We're troubled when we fall down. We desire to stand back up and advance. We want to know what His will is. We're interested in following it. We pray for help in following it. Those things mark a Christian. Loving obedience. Obedient love. It's what stamps us as belonging to Him. And we must be marked by it, this text emphasizes, if we hope to experience His blessing. He repeatedly ties blessing to this attitude of obedient love. It's the whole thing in verse 8 and following. If you keep these commandments, then you will be strong and you will walk in and possess the land full of blessing. But 16, if you turn after other gods, you'll lose it. That's why it's important to pass it on to our kids. Not just so that they know. Because blessing from God is tied to it. They have to be marked by and experience obedient love. And if they don't, they're going to miss His blessing. That's that's the whole reason it's important to pass it on. Throughout the text, 
it's plain as day in 26, 27, 28. The blessing, cursing section. He is explicit on this point. Obedience and blessing, disobedience and cursing. That's, that's the way it is. We have to, we, we must respond to him in obedient love. And God clearly commands this. And he clearly wants us to get it. Both as a, as a strong command, and I think another way I might describe it is kind of like a, a, a hope-filled lure. You see the command, obey, keep the commandments, and the lure is the blessing part. He says, obey, love me above all else. I'm worthy of this and I require it. And obey, love me above all else for your joy. Son, daughter, there's blessing along this path. I, I promise you, walk it with me. It's there. I'll give it. And I'll give it again and again and again. Come with me down this path. That's the lure part. He's got both of those things, a command and a promise. And he wants that to come across in both of those ways to us. So the, the first thing in this chapter is, is just that straightforward challenge. Are you an obedient lover of God? Are you? Does that mark your life perfectly? No, we sin. But does it, does it characterize you? Is it the path that you walk and when you fall off of it, you want to get back onto it and you're grieved by your shortcomings in it? Are you marked by obedient love? Well, what does that look like? Well, well, this chapter doesn't really give us any specifics. Chapter 11 itself does not elaborate and give us a detail. Here's what that would look like in the day-to-day. But if you remember something, that the great big, in your Bible, the great big 11 is artificial. We put those numbers in there to help us navigate the Bible. There wasn't an 11 originally. This all flows right out of chapter 10. If you remember that, you see this week and last week connected together and you remember the similarities in the commandments about allegiance and wanting love and obedience, then you might also remember that there was one specific given last week. Up in chapter 10, at the end of 18, God talks about how He acts. He says, so He says things like, walk in my ways, follow after me. And then He says specifically, Here, here's a piece of me. Here's what I'm like. I do justice for the widow and the orphan, and I love the sojourner, the foreigner living in the midst of the people. And I meet His needs. And so then, 19, the one specific, you then also love the sojourner. We talked about this last week. The one specific, amidst all of this stuff about, I think rather heavily, I want from you loving obedience. Really heavy emphasis on that. And the one specific that he gives is, and here's what that looks like specifically, love the vulnerable in your midst. Widow, orphan, sojourner. Love the disadvantaged. Love those who are in need. The one thing he wants 
We talked about that last week because I'm convinced it is a need in our church. So I wanna, I, I'm touching on it again just a little bit this morning. He requires loving obedience. What does that look like? Well, in this context, the one thing that's mentioned is what it looks like is love for, is love for other people in the midst who have need. Love for others. Which makes perfect sense if you think about the law. Two tables of the law. Love God, love other people. Jesus summarized what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Everybody, says Jesus. Makes a lot of sense. And I bring this up again because I'm convinced that as a church we need to grow in this. Talked about it last week. Talked about it yesterday at the congregational meeting. Prayed for it. We are, I think we are a, a very kind and polite people overall. That's different than love. It's different than the love that sacrifices and lays down one's own life to bless others. That's really different than being kind and polite. Love costs something very often. Love involves time and commitment. And we lack that. I don't want to, I don't, I'm not trying to beat us up over that. I'm just trying to point it out again and underline it again. This is what it means to be an obedient lover of God, to love what He loves. Which, in this context, the one thing He says is, I love the sojourner. So I want to bring that up and I want to press that again. But I also want to step back and be a little more generic. Because while, while the context surely includes chapter 10, and it calls out this love to us, what we're left with just overall is a consistent call to be obediently loving in every way. Without any qualifiers, without any one thing in particular that excludes all the rest. And so I want to I talk to you as Christians and say, just in general in your life, are you marked by obedient love towards God? And I think that you already know you're supposed to be and, and can probably write down where you fail. I certainly can. I know where I am prone to disobedience and prone to wander. So I bet you can write down where that is in your life. You see the disobedience in you. You see the fickle love that is warm towards God one minute and chasing after another God in the next. And you know it's wrong. And a passage like this hits you and, it, and it, it's like, oh, I know, thank you very much. You, you feel some conviction by this and, and here's how we often try to deal with this. We rotate around, maybe there are more options, I'm going to list three. We rotate around between despairing over our failing. I know what I'm supposed to be. I know the places where I fail. Thank you for whacking me with that again. Woe is me. We, we, we can't be there for a little while. 
or sometimes then we try to we move around to the next spot, which is kind of the the rationalizing denial place. I guess I just probably won't be any better than this ever. This is just going to be a problem that plagues me, and frankly, it's not all that big of a deal. And the grace of God in your mind sort of becomes a license to live like this because, hey, he forgives me, so I'm okay. And actually, probably it was their fault anyway. They provoked me. That's why I got furiously angry with them. The, the rationalizing denial place. And then the third place we rotate around to is, is sometimes the, the, the deep concern to really get after it this time and change. I think we, we camp out in despair or denial or diligent work. Knowing you're supposed to be other than you are. At least I hang out in those three places. Maybe there are other places. But I encounter God's requirement, and sometimes I encounter the requirements of the law like this. And and I camp out in those three places, and gloriously, this text does not mean for us to be there. In in any of those places. God has a, a, a very different idea about how we are to respond to His command, as well as his, his wooing, that we be obedient, loving people. He requires it, yes, and he means also to enable it. Not for us to despair or d- deny the requirement or get really, really diligent in changing. He has a different idea, and that's the second observation. So we see the requirement in the text of obedient love. Particularly loving other people, but across the board, obedient love. And the second observation tells us something about how he helps bring that about. This obedient love that he requires, it's a byproduct. It comes from something else. Here's a second observation. Obedient love is a fruit of understanding and trusting in the grace of God. Obedient love is a fruit. It it grows from something, like, like a piece of fruit hanging on a branch or something like that. Obedient love is a fruit that grows from understanding and then trusting in the grace of God. Before I root this in the text, I think it will be helpful for us to think a little bit about what disobedient betrayal looks like. So I'm talking about obedient love in the first point. Let's take the opposite of that, disobedient betrayal. What's going on there? Put yourself in a situation where you're facing temptation. Something simple. I'll, I'll use an acquaintance offends you, but you could put literally just anything in here that, that involves a temptation that wants to draw you away into sin in some, in some fashion or another. So if there's one that's better for you, put that in. I'm going to use an acquaintance, maybe a coworker, a classmate, or a spouse. Someone speaks rude to you or harshly to you and offends you. They, they dump on you. And the temptation that arises in you is the temptation to fire right back at them. Or, depending on your personality, perhaps the, the thought about, 
If you were to fire back right back at them, what would you say? That's kind of what rises up. And then what also comes to mind is a whole bunch of passages about loving others, about being kind, about not returning insult for insult, about commending Christ in your attitude, etc. Basically, you know what you're supposed to do, and you know what you want to do. You know what you should say and what you wish you could say. Both of those things are right there in your mind in, in the second, right after this person rips into you. So you've got two paths laid out in front of you. You could walk down this one, you could walk down this one. And the struggle in your mind is between no way should I let that person get away with that. That was way out of line. That was tremendously rude and disrespectful. I deserve to be treated better than that. I shouldn't be insulted. That's, that is inappropriate on their, port, on their part. It tears me down. It hurts my feelings, maybe. I, I don't want to be a doormat for people. I should stand up for myself. And I should put them in their place. I tell them what their place is and then put them in it. And then there's the other road. Bless those who curse you. Okay. Which path am I going to walk down? If I swerve off onto this path, I'm following another God, namely myself. One that I'm bowing down in front of is me and a desire to exalt me. If I follow this path, then I'm following the Lord and submitting my life to Him and entrusting myself to Him who judges justly. The words of First Peter. This is loving obedience. This is disobedient betrayal, turning after other gods. What's needed there at the crossroad is something to come to me that persuades me, that convinces me that this is the path that I want to walk. This is the path that will bless me. This is the path where goodness and rightness and joy and peace and hope is found, and that path is the path of death. Though it may seem for a moment that I get a little bit of pleasure of setting them down, it's wrong. Not wrong in a theoretical law sense, but destructive for me. This is the path of hope. I need something to come to me at the crossroads and convince me of that. That what God says here is where life lies. Because at the moment, it appears that this is what I really want to do. You see the tension, the dynamic there. What's, what's going on at the moment is I'm debating between betrayal and love. Disobedience and obedience. You see that. Verse 2 then. Verse 1's command is immediately followed by verse 2's command to consider something. Essentially, standing at the crossroad, God in verse 2 says, Okay, consider this. Let me draw up some of the evidence. Think about something. What I have done. Remember the what he did, what he did, what he did, what he did, five times here. And also back at the end of chapter 10, six times. 
He pulls up in front of him. Right after he gives the command, you must respond to me in loving obedience. And here's the evidence that if you think about this, will persuade you, that's the way that I want to go. And what is all of that evidence? It's his gracious work of delivering them. He did something to Pharaoh and to Egypt, their oppressors. He did something to the enemy that pursued them. He did something for them in the wilderness, meeting their needs. He did something to the internal threat that would have destroyed them if left to fester and grow. What he brings up, I command you to go this route and look at my gracious deliverance in your past over decades. Consider that. I know you know it. I mean, he's talking to people who, he said, I'm not talking to your kids who don't know it. You know it. The issue is, consider it. This is what I have done. It is the discipline of the Lord. It's what I have done on purpose, showing you my might bent towards your good. Consider it. Ponder that. As if he says, I realize I realize that you are tempted to turn aside to other things, as other gods, they promise to help you and give you blessing. They, they're promising that. I, I get that. I know that. And it's a struggle because you can't see me right now, but you can really see them very clearly. They're right in front of you. And their offers sound good. Their power seems threatening, scary. I, I get that you're in that position. So let me remind you of something. When you were locked in bondage, enslaved and oppressed, who liberated you? When you were in mortal danger from the enemy, who protected you? When you needed food and water and clothing for years, who provided for you? When you were threatened from within, who cleansed you and saved you? I did it. You see that. What does that mean about me? Consider it. What does that mean about me? Am I fickle towards you over decades doing this? Do I not care about you? Am I going to abandon you? Is my, is my arm too short to save? Can I not help you, even though I might like to? What does this tell? Think about this. What does this tell you about me and my character and my, my attitude towards you? He's pointing back at past grace and making an argument from it. And then he immediately, so notice this, he points back at all that he's done, pointing back at this past grace of saving them. Verse 8, commands them, and then immediately, what does he do? He points at his promised grace tomorrow. Keep my commandment, you will be strong, you will go into the land to receive it, and it is a good land that I bless. He points back and points forward. He calls for, if I can posture this here, he calls for, demands obedient love like this. Look at this and look at this. What does this tell you? Think about this. What does this tell you about this? It says that I'm inclined to give it to you. I'm powerful enough to give it to you. I will. 
give it to you. Walk with me. Come. Hold fast to me. Don't go that path. There's death on that path. Just around the corner, the bridge is out and you're done. Don't go there. Come with me. Why? Because look at this. Now, Christian, this is the point to grasp here. We do not pursue this required obedient love by despairing over lacking it, or by denying that we have to have it, or by becoming really diligent in striving after it. We pursue it by looking back at God's past grace, discerning what it says about His character, and trusting Him to be that way tomorrow, like He says He will. Take Him at His word. Obedient love is an issue of faith. Faith in promised grace tomorrow. Based on the evidence of delivered grace yesterday. Faith is the issue. What are we, just, what are we supposed to look at, this, this grace from yesterday? Well, what does he point them back at? He points them back at the defining, delivering event in their life bringing them out of slavery in Egypt and bringing them through the land and bringing them through the pro- to the promised land, which is all good and, and nice and fine, but for us, that's just pages in a book. The actual deliverance that has happened in our life is centered on Christ's cross and His spiritually saving me from my spiritual bondage, delivering me through this life and carrying me to the heaven that is to come. I'm not there yet. But he's carrying me towards it. And I look back and say, He has saved me. He has worked in my life to deliver me from sin. We do the same thing. He calls out to us Christians today, obedient love, and He calls out like this. Same thing. He's not pointing at Egypt, though. He's pointing at the cross. And He's not pointing at Canaan. He's pointing at heaven. But he's got the same thing going on here. There is a great blessing out here and there are blessings every step of the way to there if you follow after me. And I will deliver. Look at the cross. This must become, this must become how we think. We cannot dismiss the call to obedient love. I hope that you don't settle in despair. But I, I plead with you, as, as an individual person, and then as we talked about this yesterday at the, at the congregational meeting, this is what the gospel community is supposed to be about, that we to one another remind each other of this all the time. So I plead with you, do this personally, privately, and in groups with one another in twos and threes. Demand from yourself and from others obedient love. Do it. God does. But work towards that like this. By pointing at the cross and by pointing at the hope that's promised and is sure. This is the dynamic of how holiness grows in a Christian. Obedient love, same, same thing, just different words. 
<laughs> saw some flash up there. <laughs> so did everybody else I saw. <laughs> Obedient love is a fruit of understanding and trusting in the grace of God. And for us, the grace of God is shown in Christ at the cross. Set your hearts on that. Set your mind on that. Pray for God to give you grace to believe it. I'm not, I'm not telling, I don't think, I'm telling most of us anything that we don't already know. But the dynamic of how it works is critical. You must fight for obedient love by understanding and then believing that God is a God of grace for you. Because you are in Jesus. And this path of following Him leads to communion with Him, life with Him, blessing with Him. And that path leads to death. You don't want to walk it. That's a belief question. Trust Him and pray for grace to trust Him more. It's a fruit. It grows from understanding the grace of God. And so therefore, stir up obedient love towards God by considering the grace of God in Christ. Pondering it. Driving it in. Living washed by it. This is what produces sanctification. Obedient love. Let me pray. Father, we... I I stand here, Lord, aware of the need for this to become a part of my life and every single one of our lives, moment by moment by moment. And I also stand here knowing that the gap between what I I need to have happen and what does happen is, is, is wide in my life and I'm sure in the lives of my brothers and sisters here. We know many things and they fly out of our minds right at that moment when somebody yells at us. So Lord, what I pray for is that You would give grace to remind us of these things. You would give grace to cause the Gospel to live so close to the surface in our lives that as soon as something presses on us or pokes us, it bleeds out. Covers us, runs from us to others. Would you graciously cause that, that type of thinking, that type of considering to take place in us? Cause the, the grace that you have poured out on us at the cross, that you're delivering of us, to seem marvelous. Cause it to grow in us faith in You. We're dependent on You, Lord. I I talk about this. We listen to it. But we are dependent on You to make it reality. Please do that. Produce change in us. By grace, grow in us obedient love. That Christ would be glorified. That Your church would mature and grow and be blessed. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.